We're going to be in Luke chapter 18. If you want to turn there this morning, that's where we're going to be. We're in this series. We've been in the series for a while now called Red Letters. We're actually coming to the end of, of a series where we're taking a look just at the words of Jesus. Some of the teaching straight from the mouth of Christ in the Gospel of Luke. And we haven't said this for a while, so I want to mention to you that uh, we had some artists at the beginning of this series gather, read through this entire section of Scripture that we've been looking at, and then they just asked the Spirit to empower some of their creativity, and they did some painting for us. There's some paintings over here, some on the wall over here, and then in the back and the front. Actually, Allie Dahlgren, the, the a woman who led worship for us this morning, one of those paintings is hers or at least she contributed, and one of those paintings is actually her daughter's. And so, kids, you also can be empowered to uh, express your faith uh, through the arts and through painting. It's a beautiful thing. So, today we're taking a look, another teaching of Jesus. Um, And I have to tell you, friends, once again, Jesus will not disappoint us. I, I have not yet been disappointed when looking at the teaching of Jesus. Today will not be the first day. We're in Luke chapter 18. God, come and uh, empower these words. Use them to, to change us and to touch us and to, and to transform us that we would be your people. That's our prayer today. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I just kind of launched into a prayer there. You're like, is he praying or just talking? We weren't sure. It was awkward there for a minute. I was praying. you, You caught on. Here we go. Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 18. A certain ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad, because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who was rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, No one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. All right, here we go. We're just going to jump right into this passage today. We're going to walk right through it, understand what it is Jesus is offering us um, and, and hopefully clear up some things that maybe you've misunderstood about this passage in the past. Verse 18, we're jumping right in. And first of all, what Luke wants us to understand is that the guy who approaches Jesus is a ruler. Right away, he tells us who this guy is. He says, a ruler approached Jesus. Uh, Luke designates. He wants us to know instantly who the main character is. He wants us to know that this is a person who has prestige, who has power, who has position and status. Later in the passage, we discover that he's also rich. In Mark's version of this same story, uh, in Matthew's version of this same story, the same story occurs in two other Gospels, we're also told that this person is young. And thus, this very famous character is often referred to as the 
rich, young ruler. You've heard of him before, right? Now, before we move on, I want to point this out. Those three things are perhaps the most sought after three things by the entire human race. The three things that said, you're important, you have significance, you've got it going on, you're doing really, really well for yourself in this life. You are young, you still got your health, you are a ruler, you have position and prestige and status, and you are wealthy, you've got money, you've got resources, wealth has come to you. Friends, isn't it interesting that the three things that people were most tempted to chase, most tempted to seek after in the ancient world 2,000 years ago across the entire ocean are the same three things that our culture tells us to chase today. This is why the Bible is so amazing. Because Jesus speaking 2,000 years ago to a foreign culture can hit something that's right at the heart, right at the heart of our society and culture today. The Bible just, it just, Jesus, he just spans time. He just, because people are still people. And no matter where you live and no matter when you live there, you are still a part of the human race. And the gospel, the scriptures are relevant for you. And so Jesus says, we have a rich, young ruler. And listen to his question, the question he asked Christ. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Isn't that a good question? Isn't that a great question? Let's just get to it, Jesus. Give me the, like, let's cut to the mustard here. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, I'm thinking, this has got to be the easiest question Jesus has ever fielded, right? I mean, a lot of you in here, you feel a tremendous, maybe some of you, you feel tremendous amounts of guilt because you don't share about Jesus with enough people in the world. You don't do evangelism. You don't talk about the gospel to that many people. Anyone here ever feel guilty about not talking about the gospel with others? Friends, even you could answer this question. I mean, you you should be thinking, if that ever happened to me, I could nail it. But no one ever does this. No one ever comes up to me and says, you know, uh, Pastor Gabby, can you just tell me what it is I need to do to inherit eternal life? I mean, if only it was that simple. If that actually did happen to me, I'll say one time on an airplane, almost that directly. But that was a super unique situation and a completely different sermon. But the point is, this this question feels like a layup. It feels like a home run. It feels like exactly the right question. And yet it's, as we're going to learn, exactly the wrong question. And Jesus will help this young ruler see that. Listen to it again carefully. What must, and circle these two words, I do... To inherit eternal life. You see, friends, this young guy has bought into what I want to call the lie of self-reliance. He has convinced himself that he can do it, that it's up to him. He believes eternal life is something that he can and must gain for himself. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He thinks it's all about him. He thinks it lands on his shoulders. Friends, what's the number one focus of our culture right now? This is not the uh, this is not the a trick question, by the way. What's the number one thing all of you have been focused on? That our world is focused on? That all of television and social media is focused on? Everyone is focused on on the Olympics. It's why you're all so tired today. 
Because like me, you've been staying up every night till midnight to watch the Olympics and then getting up. And if this sermon seems a little thin today, it's probably because of that. No, we've all been focused on the Olympics. We are dialed into the Olympics. We love the Olympics. Our culture is, is like crazy about the Olympics. Who, by the way, who are some of your favorites? Michael Phelps? Katie Ledecky? Simone Biles, you like her? Usain Bolt? Yeah, all these people, by the way, I have on my list. And I knew that you would say all of their names. Do you know how I knew? They're winners. Who do we like? We like winners. People like winners. We like winners. And it becomes so obvious to us during the Olympics. We are enamored, friends, with people who achieve, with people who accomplish, with people through through talent and effort and ability uh, are, are the best. Achievement is something that resonates deep in our souls. Um, furthermore, it's something about winners that I think like, pulls us in. Tell me if you don't do this. Here's the, the reason we love the Olympics so much is not just because we're enamored with fencing. In fact, we watch things during the Olympics that we would never, ever watch. I watched water polo the other day for like an hour and a half. I've never watched water polo ever. But we'll sit and we'll watch and we are enamored. Why? Because there's something about the Olympic Games and it, like, it gets inside of our minds. And we, it's, it's not just the games for other people. It's, it's like we go there. It's this fantasy world where we think, I could have been great. I think, I think if I'd have devoted myself a little more, I could be there. And we, we associate with the athletes and we sort of live vicariously through them. And we think just because they represent our nation, when they win and the, like the anthem gets played, it's like we won. We feel like we accomplished something. It's like, yeah, I'm kind of great too. That's why Pastor Gabby's feeling a little bad today because Mexico hasn't won any. Oh, oh wow, low blow. <sighs> She can handle it. She's tougher than you think. But we do that. It's like, man, I feel so good about myself when Michael Phelps went. It goes even a little farther. Maybe some of you have even done this kind of a thing before. And this is vulnerable, so hopefully this is a safe place. I I do stuff like pretend. In fact, yesterday I was at the pool with my kids. I took them swimming. And we were swimming and just kind of chilling. There's like a lap, there's like a recreation swim here. And then there's like some lanes designated for lap swim. And I've got my goggles and I'm playing with my kids. And they're kind of off playing by themselves. And so I slip into the the lap lane and I start to swim at 200 meter IM. And I'm like breaststroking, Lily King down the stretch. And I'm doing the butterfly, Michael Phelps, in my mind, right? As I'm swimming, Michael Phelps to the wall. He outtouches him. He wins gold. I'm sucking the water in and spitting it out like they do, which is really gross. But... But there's this sense of like, it just awakens this, this thing in us. We all want to be great. We all want to accomplish. We all want to achieve. Achievement makes us feel wonderful. You see, and the Olympics tells us something else. If only we achieve enough, then we'll be happy. If only we achieved enough, then we'd be satisfied. If only we could win or be great or be at the top, then there would just be this deep contentment in our souls. What could make someone feel better about themselves than a gold medal? If I had, if I was Simone Biles, if I was Michael Phelps, if I had 22 or whatever gold medals, man, that would just be amazing. I would feel so 
accomplished so good. And there's this lie, right? A number of years ago, there was a movie out. Uh, it starred John Candy, and it's a little bit old, but some of you remember it. It's, it's loosely based on the true story of the Jamaican bobsled team. Remember when Jamaica threw a bobsled team? And they made a movie about it. It's called Cool Runnings. And the, the movie kind of takes its own turn. But the coach of the bobsled team in the movie is played by John Candy and is a guy by the name of Irv Blitzer. And in the movie, again, this isn't true, but in the movie, Irv is a former athlete. He won two gold medals and then he got busted for cheating and got disqualified, got kind of thrown out of competition. And at one point in the movie, one of the bobsled guys, one of the athletes, asks Irv... Why? Why did you cheat? And he says, you had it all. You had everything. Like, you had everything anyone could have ever wanted. You had two gold medals. Why in the world would you cheat? And then John Candy gives him this answer. And the answer John Candy gives, uh, Coach Irv Blitzer, is very similar to the message that Jesus is going to give us today. So I'm going to play this clip, and I want you to pay attention to what Coach Blitzer says in response to this question. Take a look on the screens. Hey, Coach. Yeah. I have to ask you a question. Sure. But you don't have to answer if you don't want to. I mean, I want you to, but if you can't, I understand. You want to know why I cheated, right? Yes, I do. That's a fair question. It's quite simple, really. I had to win. You see, Therese, I've made winning my whole life. And when you make winning your whole life, you have to keep on winning, no matter what. You understand that? No, I don't understand, Coach. You had two gold medals. You had it all. Therese... A gold medal is a wonderful thing. But if you're not enough without it, you'll never be enough with it. Hey, Coach. Yeah. I have I to just, ask you a question. You can cut it there. Sure. But Did you hear don't his have res- to answer if you don't want Did you hear his response? Listen to these words again. A gold medal is a wonderful thing. But if you're not enough without it, you'll never be enough with it. Achievement, accomplishment, self-reliance will never produce the sort of peace and joy and satisfaction and contentment in your soul that you think it will. And if that's what you're relying on, if that's what you're chasing to attain ultimate peace, eternal life, then you're going to fail miserably. And now Jesus is going to rework this guy's understanding about where eternal life comes from. He's even going to rework his understanding about what it is. He's going to tell this guy, you're on the wrong path. You're following the wrong plan. You're chasing the wrong thing in order to get what it is your soul longs for. But the path you're on will never take you there. A certain ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. Now, this is kind of a weird response, isn't it? 
I mean, this response, just on the surface level, almost feels like Jesus is either saying one of two things. Either A, he's sort of saying like, why do you say I'm good? Only God's good. I'm not God. And, and yet we know that Jesus says time and time again throughout the scriptures that he is God, that he claims to be God. And so he's not saying that. It also feels a little sort of uppity and pious, which Jesus normally isn't, right? No one is good but God alone. Hey, good teacher, no one is good but God alone. Can you imagine that if someone said, hey, good sermon, pastor, or good job this week, Johnny. No one is good but God alone. He'd be like, what a snob, right? And so Jesus, and Jesus isn't saying that. What is Jesus actually saying here? Now, it's important to point this out. Jesus always does this kind of stuff, sort of talks in codes, uh, talks with a little bit of mystery. He rarely gives us a straight answer to our questions. And the, and the question is, why? Here's why. He understands the value of forcing his audience to think for themselves. Jesus doesn't want to just program you with a bunch of right answers. He wants you to think deeply about reality, about life and truth and the gospel and God. He wants you to mull things over for yourself. And so what he's doing here is he's foreshadowing a bit. He's cluing us in that there is perhaps a new approach, a new way of thinking about eternal life and where it's found. He's saying this. He's saying, if he is truly good, he's saying, if if you notice that I'm good, if I am truly good, and true goodness, real goodness, can only be found in God, then the way to be good, the way to be eternally good enough, is maybe not found in you or in what you do, but instead in me. Maybe you're on the wrong path path. You see, Jesus is starting to deconstruct this guy's paradigm, your paradigm, my paradigm, the paradigm of the entire world. He's starting to crumble the paradigm of self-reliance. He's saying, the first place you go as humans is naturally to yourself because you're self-focused. You think it's all about you. It's all up to you. It all starts with you and ends with you. You are selfish people. And if some of you are sitting in here today and you're thinking to yourself, I'm not selfish. I'm actually quite unselfish. I can't believe Pastor Dave thinks I am selfish. I, I can tell you how I know you're selfish. It's pointed out to me this week by uh, John Maxwell that you can tell everybody is a selfish person through one moment, and that moment is the family photo. Big family photo, we're taking a group shot, this one's going on the Christmas card, we're posting it on Instagram, right? The photo's taken, you get a look at it, who's the first person you look for? Who's the first person you want to make sure looks good in that photo? yourself. And if you look good, you're like, that's a great one. Send it out. I'm posting it right now, right? Everyone else has like their tongue out and they're looking at the ceiling. Um, they look terrible. But if you look good, it's a great one. If you look bad, you're like, no, I don't think so. Reshoot, reshoot. Let's do another one right back here, right? That's how it goes. Because we're selfish. We, we, we default back to, it starts with me. It ends with me. It depends on Me, and Jesus is saying, when it comes to eternal life, when it comes to being good enough, to being good with God, that is the wrong paradigm. It's the wrong starting place, and it is the wrong ending place. But the way of self-focused human beings is to think, what must I do? Because it must be up to me. Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and your mother. Now, 
Before we talk about what Jesus is teaching here, I think it's important to point out how he teaches it. How does Jesus dialogue with this guy and instruct him and shift him into a new way of thinking? Because he doesn't just give him the right answer, does he? It's a really easy question. Most of us in here know the answer to the question, how do I inherit eternal life? How many here think they could answer that question, like from a biblical Christianity, Cedar Mill Bible Church doctrine sort of perspective? A lot of you could. Easy answer. And yet Jesus never offers the answer. He never tells the guy the answer. He never gives him a straight answer. Why? Again, he wants the guy to think for himself. And so what does he do? He asks questions. He asks the guy to think and consider and evaluate for himself. This is not formulaic evangelism, friends. This is not let me program you with the words so that you can repeat it back to me and then we can all feel good about ourselves, move on, and live our lives exactly the way we did yesterday. No, this is Jesus providing some space for self-reflection, for dialogue. He doesn't tell this guy what he should believe or what he should change. He just invites the guy to do some self-reflection. Friends, do you know something about yourselves that you don't know? Do you know what you don't know about yourselves? Let me tell you about some things that you don't know about yourselves. There's a bunch of things you don't know about yourselves. You know what they are? All the things you don't know about yourselves. (laughs) What you don't know about yourself is all the things you don't know about yourselves, friends. All of us have things we don't know about ourselves. Things we don't see in us, but they are true. And the people around us know they are true. Guys, your wife knows those things. Your friends know those things. We all need people who are willing to create some space and hold up a mirror and say, let me tell you some things about you that you don't know about yourself. That's what Jesus does here. He says, let me show you some things about you that you don't know. I'm not going to just tell you. I'm going to give you some, some room to explore on your own. Friends, let me ask you this. Do you have people in your life that interact with you this way? That are willing to do this with you? That instead of just coming into your life and saying, this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong, or instead of just coming into your life and being like, I don't know, I don't want to mess with how things are going wrong, but they're wanting to just come in and create some safe space for dialogue and reflection so that you can say, I know there's some things about me that aren't right that need to change and I need some people to help me in a safe way process through that. Do you have someone in your life that does that for you? Do you do that for someone else? Are you willing to be a safe person who asks questions and listens and gives time and room for dialogue and self-reflection? Are you that kind of a person? It's the kind of person Jesus is. Why? Because he understands it will lead to real life change, not just formulaic answers. And Jesus was never just into formulaic answers. He's always after deep, heart, soul, real life change. All these I have kept since I was a boy, the young ruler says. Now one thing I want you to see here that's often missed about self-reliant religion is that this guy and all his accomplishment and all his confidence and all his religion and righteousness, commandment, 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 all these I've, I've done this ever since I was a kid. That's just basic, Jesus. I got that nailed. Is this guy humble or arrogant? If you're new around here, the reason no one answers my questions is because they know (laughs) that I like to fool, right? Is this guy humble or arrogant? He seems really arrogant, doesn't he? 
He seems overly confident. He seems really confident in himself. Yeah, I got this nailed. I'm rich, I'm young, I'm a ruler, I follow all the commandments, I'm the shiznizzle, right? That's, he just seems that way. And yet, here's the truth, here's the truth about the path of self-reliance. On the exterior, it always seems confident, even prideful or arrogant, but on the inside, internally, there was always this undercurrent of tremendous insecurity. Why is he even there? If he's so confident, if he's so arrogant, if he's so self-assured, why is he even here talking to Jesus in the first place? Why does he even ask the question? Here's why. Because if you start to give into this idea that, hey, I can get right with God by living a good life, by doing it on my own, it is going to eventually create radical insecurity in your soul. It's because of what John Candy said. If your whole life is about winning, if your whole life is about achieving, if your whole life is about being good enough and doing the right things, then you'll have to continue to do that forever. And at some point, at some point you start to wonder, is it enough? Can I keep it up? How long can I stay on this treadmill? All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Do you see what Jesus is doing now? Now he's starting to hone in. Now he's he's getting to the heart of the matter. He's saying, okay, if your system is to be good enough by obeying all the rules and following the commandments, if your system is self-reliance, then let's play this out a little bit. If you think you're doing such a great job of following these commandments ever since you were a kid, right? Again, I don't even think the guy was saying he was perfect. He was just saying, yeah, I live this way. I follow these rules. I follow these commandments. Jesus says, okay, you think you're doing well? How about the first commandment? How about you shall have no other gods before me? Anything in your life before God? Got anything that you won't give to God or lay down before him? Hey, how about money? How about your money? How about your wealth? You see, one of the the very first things... One of the first questions that people ask about this story kind of leaps out at us is this. Is Jesus telling us here to sell all we have and give our money to the poor? Like, is he saying, hey, if you want eternal life, you want heaven when you die, you want life in Christ, sell all you have, give money to the poor. Is that the, is that the instruction? Is that what he wants us to do? Perhaps. Probably not. Probably not. I'm not even convinced he actually wants this guy to do that. I think he really wants this guy to understand that he won't, that he can't, that he hasn't. What he really wants this guy to see is that he can't even follow commandment number one. You want to base your eternal life, your achievement, your self-worth, your security, your standing before God on your own personal achievements, your Ability to follow the commandments, all the rules? Well, let's go to the very first one. You can't even follow the very first one. And so he says, let's take a look at your money. Another another uh, incident, Jesus in John chapter 4 meets a woman in Samaria at a well. Remember this story? Jesus also talks to her about eternal life. He has a conversation about the same subject matter. In this scenario, he calls it living water. And he says, I have living water. I have a water that if you drink it, you will never thirst again. And she says, that's great, sir. I would love that. I'd like to have some of that water. Would you give it to me? 
And he says, you want some of my living water? Do this. Go get your husband. And she says, well, I don't have a husband. And he says, right, I know that. You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. Notice here, he never talks about money. He never says, hey, here's what you need to do to get eternal life. Here's what you need for living water. Go sell all your money, give it to the poor, and follow me. He doesn't say that. No, he says, let's talk about men. Let's talk about your relationships. Why is he pushing her on this here? I'll tell you why. He's pushing her on this because... This is her living water. This is the thing that she's been looking to for hope and meaning and love and security. It's men. It's relationships. He's saying this. You can't look to relationships to give you what only I can give you. As long as you continue to lean on that, you won't lean on me. He sees inherently that she is leaning on something else. She's leaning on herself. She's relying on something in her life that she's produced. He sees the same thing in the rich young ruler. He's not looking to relationships, though. He's looking to what? His money to find security and value and identity and hope. And so Jesus here is making a theological point. He's saying, nobody obeys the Ten Commandments. Look at the first one. You can't even get past the first one. When he heard this, now this makes sense, right? When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. He's bummed because now Jesus is going after his God, the thing that he's ultimately relying on for security and safety and self-esteem. Very sad is a word that means deeply grieved or distressed or disoriented. It's like they've been sparring and now Jesus has connected a jab right to the nose and he's staggering a bit. Why is he staggering? Because money is more than money to him. It's what men were to that woman at the well. It's what popularity or attractiveness or reputation or success or intelligence or accomplishment are to a lot of us. And he's starting to see that he isn't good enough to earn eternal life, that there's nothing that he can do. You see, the question for us today isn't, is Jesus your Lord and Savior? Friends, so is Jesus your Lord and Savior? You know why that's not the question? Because you all know the answer to that question. All of you will just say, yes, yes, he is. And it's so easy and it's so simple. And yet, friends, what Jesus wants to say here is, eh, not true, liars, self-deceived, not that simple. The deeper question Jesus is driving at with this guy and with you and me in this passage is this. What are you really relying on for meaning, purpose, security in your life? What in your life would you not leave behind if Jesus asked you to? What are you leaning on at the same time saying, I'm leaning on Christ? Money is Lord, but I'll say that Jesus is. My reputation is Lord, but I'll say that Jesus is. My success at my job is Lord, but I'll say that Jesus is. The thing that I really care most about, that I derive the most joy and satisfaction and purpose from is being an intelligent person, being an educated person. But I'll say it's Jesus. You see, it's too easy to say it's Jesus. It's too easy. And Jesus says, what's competing with God in your life? What's at the root of your self-reliance? Because we're all tempted, friends, just like this guy, to lean on self-reliance. What's at the root of your self-reliance? That's the question. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy because Jesus had pinned it down. Because Jesus had said, this is actually what your God is. This is actually what you're relying on. 
Jesus looked at him and said this, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Instead, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who was rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, what is Jesus saying here? This is very simple. A camel was simply the, the largest known animal in that world. That was the biggest animal around. They said, it's like a, the biggest animal there is to go through the smallest hole there is. And that would be what? Impossible. There's no way to get a camel through the eye of a needle. Have you ever tried this? The camel is not actually the largest known animal in our world. If Jesus was giving this parable to us today, he would say, it is impossible for a, a blue whale, a blue whale to go through the eye of a needle or through like the nucleus of an atom or something he might use in, at Cedar Mill with Intel folks here. Um, I, just by the way, um, have you seen how big a blue whale is lately? I was complaining just the other night to uh, Josh Burnick about whale watching, how I think whale watching is lame. And he was like, have you seen this video? And he shows me a video of these people whale watching and this giant blue whale comes towards the boat, comes out of the water, like turns sideways, opens its mouth and goes right under the boat. And the thing just keeps going and going and go- like I've, you've never seen anything as huge as this. And I had to recant and say, okay, I guess whale watching can be cool. When I went, it was like a little black dot out there in the ocean. And people were like, it was a whale. And I was like, it looked like a black dot. But we'll call it a whale and $50 well spent along with some seasickness. I mean, total, total tragedy. That's a, another time. At any rate, the point is this is impossible. What is Jesus saying? That if you're rich, you can't go to heaven? If you're rich, you can't know Christ? No, he's saying this. He's saying, if you are choosing to rely on yourself, if you are adopting a pattern of self-reliance in order to make yourself right with God, in order to attain eternal life, you're on the wrong path. It is impossible to achieve eternal life through self-reliance, whether that's reliance on money or anything else, whatever it is that's at the center of your life. But he he talks about money specifically, and here's why I think why. Uh, Because money is deceitful. Money is really hard to spot. The rich young ruler, he had youth, right? He had position, prestige, status, and he had money. But Jesus really just talks about the money. Why does he focus on the money? Well, I think it's pretty easy when you look around to see that health, that youth is fleeting. We all know that's going away at some point. We watch people float in and out of Uh, positions of power and prestige and influence. People come, people go. We all know that those moments are short-lived. But money, money has this allure of always being there. It lures us into feeling safe and secure. Because why? There's money in the bank. I got some money in my 401k. Everything's going to be just fine. I feel real safe about the days ahead. Why? Because Jesus is my God. Really? Well, because I have money in the bank. It's just real subtle that way. Money also has this way of robbing us of humility. Have you ever noticed that people who have a lot of money, they think because they have a lot of money, and this happens real subtly, real subconsciously, I have a lot of money, so I must be pretty smart. That's why I have a lot of money. And so I must be an expert. I I must be pretty smart about a lot of things. Got any examples in our world today of people who have a lot of money? Maybe they did pretty well in one area, but now they think they're an expert in all sorts of areas. I just asked you. I didn't say anything. I'm being real careful here. Um, Or kind of careful anyway. So this passage, friends, 
is about money, but it's not just about money. Money has this way of robbing us of humility. And the reason that's so crucial is because to to be a Christ follower, to enter into the gospel, the number one thing you must have is humility because it all starts with this. I can't do it on my own. I can no longer rely on myself. And so anything that will rob you of humility, of the ability to repent, of the ability to not trust in yourself but in the Lord is really dangerous. One of the great church fathers, Bernard uh, Clairvaux, said this, to see a man humble under prosperity is the greatest rarity in the world. And that should be a scary warning to us in 21st century America. So this this passage is not just for the rich, not just for people who struggle with putting money before God, it's for people who struggle with putting anything before God, who rely on themselves through any means... That's what this passage is for. And so again, the question is, do you love God more than money? That's what the, Jesus asked this man. Do you love God more than money? He might ask you, do you love God more than your family? Do you love God more than success or your career or your popularity or your good looks or your intelligence or your sense of humor? Do you love God more than anything else in this world? And your answer? Your answer is no. You want it to be yes, and I love that you do, Right? But Jesus was saying here, your answer is no. You can't, you can't keep God on the throne of your life for two minutes. You'll declare him as Lord and you'll say he's the thing and then tomorrow you'll be out trying to earn and prove and strive and based on your life on something else. Then the very next day, the whole point of this passage is you can't follow the commandments. You want to follow the commandments. You'll stencil them on the walls of your churches Just as a reminder that you don't actually love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That you don't love your neighbor as yourself. Not perfectly, not all the time. Actually, I would say, probably most of the time, you don't. Most of the time, I don't. And again, that's the the point of the passage. If you're relying on yourself and your ability to follow the rules and be a good person and achieve enough, even religiously, you're on the wrong path. Do you love God more than anything else in this world? Of course you don't. Of course you don't. And that's the primary thing Jesus wants to drive home here. The crowd understands exactly what he's saying. The crowd understands his message, and that's why they respond the way they do, right? He says, it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then what do they say? They say, who then can be saved? They don't go, ha, I knew it, those rich guys, right? They understand he's not just indicting them. They understand he's indicting everyone, all of us. Who then can be saved? Not just the rich. We're all in big trouble. They get it. Jesus replies, and this is probably probably the best part. What is impossible with man is possible with God. You see, friends, this, this passage does not drive at do more for God. Go one step farther for God. Give up more for God. Sacrifice more for God so that you can have eternal life. If you would only give more money to poor people, then you could have eternal life. Not the point of this passage. The point of this passage, what this passage does, is it drives us back to this truth. Since you have been given the impossible, the immeasurable, unattainable gift of eternal life from God, now go and live for him. Now, fully accepted, fully loved, now you're empowered and freed up to be radically generous to the poor. Why? Because you don't need your money anymore to make yourself someone. You're already someone in the eyes of the 
king. Here's another way of thinking about it. Another way of thinking about what this passage is really all about. Kind of a weird flip around. What if the rich young ruler had done it? What if he'd responded differently? What if this passage ended in a different way? Um, what if Jesus said, hey, sell all, your, sell all your stuff, give money to the poor, then come follow me. And he'd been like, got it, Jesus, I'm on it. And he'd have ran home, he'd have thrown up in a huge garage sale, sold all of his stuff, and then started walking around town handing out cash. He's now the most popular guy in town. He gives away everything he owns. He comes running back to Jesus and he's like, Jesus, I did it. Now I honor my father and my mother. I don't steal. Um... I don't lie, I don't murder, and, 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 adding to the list now, I give away all my stuff, I, I sold all my stuff, and I gave away all the money to the poor. Have I earned eternal life now? Did I do enough now? And Jesus' answer would be, no. Because that's not the point. It's not for the point. It's not what he's ever been driving at. He's trying to help us see ourselves in an honest way. And then here's the last bit. Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. We have left all we had to follow you. We've done it, Lord. Like we've, we've put all our weight, all of our eggs are in your basket. Tell me this was a good decision. Reassure me here, Jesus. Because I don't have like a bank account at home like this guy had. I don't even have a house to live in. We're putting it all on the line. We've left all we had to follow you. Please tell me it's going to be okay. And then Jesus responds. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Friends, if you will leave, here's the message, if you will leave worldly accomplishment and self-reliance behind, if you'll get off that path of trying to be good enough, of trying to earn eternal life on your own, if you'll stop looking to your own achievements to create meaning and purpose in your life, and you'll put God first, you'll lean all your weight on Him, here's the message, you will not regret it. If ultimately God is the source of your security... He's your primary identity. If he is first, if he is at the top, if he is truly what we would call Lord, Lord, you will not be disappointed. That's the message. And furthermore, furthermore, this is something I love. Jesus says, the deal isn't, the deal isn't, if you'll do that, your life here on earth is going to be just crummy. Right? Like you give away all your wealth, you're going to stop relying on your popularity or your personality or your good looks or your status or your performance or your success or your achievement. You're going to stop relying on all that stuff to, to give you joy and meaning and purpose in life. And so then your life's going to be crummy. It's going to be awful. It's going to be the worst thing ever. But then one day you'll die and then you'll have to go to heaven and everything will get redeemed. That's not what he says. He actually says, surprisingly enough, if you put all your weight on me, if you'll give up the self-reliance thing, you'll trade it in for a God-reliance life, you'll actually find life that will start now. See, for the Jews, eternal life wasn't just a length of time. It wasn't just life that would go on forever. That's what we think of eternal life. We just think like, oh, I'll never die. But when you think about that for a minute, what if your life stinks? What if your life's crummy? And then God comes along and he says, like, I'm going to extend it forever into eternity. Your crummy life will last forever. You know what that's called? That's called hell. Not what Jesus offers. 
Instead, he offers a life of peace and joy and satisfaction, a life that's free of that nagging insecurity that something is desperately wrong in my soul. He offers a life that's free of that now and forever. In this age to come, you can have eternal life. Eternal life starts now in Christ. But friends, here's the deal. Just like me, you're going to leave here today and because of the sinfulness and the brokenness and the fallenness in you, you're going to start to rebuild that self-reliant life. You're going to start to put energy and focus on the things that give you meaning and purpose in this life, things that you will accomplish on your own. You're going to go back to the self-reliance path, which is why every single week we come here to remind ourselves and to remind each other, we've got to get off that path. We've got to get on the God-reliant path. I'll go back again next week, Lord, but pull me back, pull me back. And God uses our community to do that. He uses one another for that. It's also why every week we come to this table as a, as a way of physically declaring, Lord, I don't want to rely on myself anymore. I don't want to find meaning and purpose and satisfaction in me or anything that I do, but I want to find it in you. I want to be fully accepted and loved and received by you so that I can live a life that's eternal, that's full of peace and love and hope and joy. And so this morning, what I want to ask you to do is this. We're going to close our service by coming to the communion tables. I want you to come, and I want you to do your best to just bring that one thing, that one thing that's at the center of your self-reliance, that one thing that if Jesus were telling this story or he was having this interaction with you, he would say, he would say okay, what about this? Would you give this up for me? Would you lay this down? Would you walk away from this? What's that one thing in the center of your life that you're tempted to rely on to give yourself meaning and purpose and status, prestige, security? Trade it in for something that will last. Just leave it on the table and trade it in for the unconditional love of Jesus Christ and God our Father found in the death and resurrection of his son. That's what this communion moment's about. Leave it at the table. If you need help with that, just ask the Spirit. Spirit, show me. Spirit, show me because i got some blind spots that I don't even see. Maybe even after this service, maybe you're going to be prompted to get together with someone and say, help me see some things about myself that I don't see about myself. What are the things in my life that I am relying on instead of Christ? So take a few minutes, do some business with God. I'm going to pray. Allie and the team are going to come lead worship. And then the tables are open. Receive the elements on your own when you're ready. God, open our hearts and minds to what it is that we're truly relying on. The places we are ultimately finding security. They can hide from us, I know, Lord. And so shine a light on them during this time, Lord, and then use our community. Use, help us to, uh, to show each other those places as honestly and graciously as we can. God, I pray that for myself. We love you, Lord. We want to rely on you, not on ourselves. We want the path that will truly lead to eternal life, not just in heaven someday, but here, now, in this world. That's our prayer. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.